If you're able, stand with me in honor of reading God's word. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which I'm not mentioning this in our sermon. We'll come back next week and encourage you to do that. Genealogy is also a word for Genesis. And so uh, a, a, a Jewish reader would hear this and read this, and immediately his mind would go to what? Genesis chapter 1, which is a clue for us to see that God's getting ready to do something new. This is a new beginning. This is a new start. This is a new Genesis. It's really, it's the same word that he uses in verse 18 when it says the birth of Jesus, which we'll talk about next week. Come back. It's the same word, Genesis of Jesus. So uh, some really uh, key things there for Matthew and for us to see that God's, God's starting something brand new here. Almost like new history, a new beginning. So an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And here we go. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nashon, uh, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David, XL. <laughs> Here we go. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Interesting. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers all the time of the exile to Babylon. And we inhale again. Here we go. After the exile to Babylon, and here's where it gets a little tricky. Je Jeconiah fathered SH guy, all right? Not the SH in the bad way, but you know what I'm saying here. And then he fathered Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel fathered uh, the A guy, and the A guy fathered Elikim, and Elikim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Achim, Achim fathered Eliud, <laughs> Eliud, uh, fathered Eliezer, Eliezer fathered Nathan, Nathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary. Did you catch that? Little little change, little change in the rhythm. Come back next week, and I'll tell you why there's a change in the rhythm. Give me little teasers, all right? Come back. There's a lot of little gems in Matthew. So Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the exile to Babylon were what? 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Yeah, God, we just ask that you would teach us that even in something that we have a tendency to kind of like, you know, skim through, uh, help us to see some, um, yeah, beautiful gems that are in these, um, this genealogy. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe seated. So, question here, um, what's the most, uh, the second most popular hobby within the United States? Anybody know what that would be? It's this right here. Yeah, filling in our family tree. Interesting, the second most popular hobby in the United States. This is free. You know what the first most popular hobby is? Gardening. 
I never would have guessed that. That's crazy. My research, my research could be off. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, but gardening, that's, that's free. It has nothing to do with my sermon. Uh, but yeah, the second most popular hobby in today's time is trying to fill out uh, this little family tree to figure out where you come from. This idea of the ancestry. Ancestry is the second most popular kind of web search today in our culture. The first most popular is pornography, which is a sermon in and of itself, and we'll talk about that maybe in the future, but today we're looking at this, all right? But it is. It's a billion-dollar business. Uh, DNA testing in 2017, men literally shot through the roof, 12 million-plus reached out to kind of do some DNA testing so they can kind of find out their roots, where they came from, you know, who's, who's my lineage, all that kind of good stuff. And so the question I ask is, you know, why? Why is this? What's our fascination with uh, with ancestry, what's our fascination with where we came from to where, you know, we're, we're spending money to try to fill in these little blanks on our family tree. I think there's a lot of reasons, and I'm not going to dive into all of those reasons, but here's one, I think. I think we like surprises. I think we like kind of finding a, a little gem or something we didn't know about ourselves, and we found out by doing some research, you know, that we Hey, I'm a part Italian, right? Explains everything. No wonder I get mad and angry and love spaghetti or whatever. I, if you're, I mean, I, please don't be, take that offensively. I'm just, you know, or found that you're Irish or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like there's these little things that you begin to do some research and you find something out about yourself that's just like, oh, wow, that's, that's kind of surprising. Didn't expect that, but I'm really, really kind of fun to find that out. I think that's a part of what um, makes this um, sort of fascinating for people to kind of do this discovery of where, we came from. Uh, Ashley reached out to me this week and said, hey, can you send me a, a sentence that kind of gives a teaser to what we're trying to do in Matthew that I can send out on uh, social media? And some of you may have read this if you're on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. I'm not sure which one it came on because I'm not really on any of those, but, uh, and that's not a moral thing. It's just, I'm dumb, but I just don't, I don't know what it is. But here's what I wrote down. All right, not that I'm dumb, but whatever. Um, here's what I said. We begin a two-year journey in the Gospel of Matthew, a two-year journey of looking at Jesus and looking at our lives so that Jesus' way becomes our way. And this journey will be disorienting and surprising, which feels a lot like walking with God. This journey will be disorienting and surprising. So that's what I want us to do this morning. I, I, I want to look at this genealogy and say, okay, what surprises us here? I mean, part of what we'll see in the Gospel of Matthew is that he hides all these little gems and all these little surprises all throughout Scripture. And if we're, if we're seeking, if we're watching, if we're looking for them, we'll, we'll find them. And there's, there's actually several in this genealogy. And I'm not mentioning them all because we're all hungry. I'm hungry, right? I'm ready to go eat something right now. My stomach's growling. Um, so, but I, I, I found four that I think is really pertinent for us, and, and hopefully um, these four will be um, a way for us to kind of launch into this two-year journey through the gospel of Matthew. So the four surprises. Here's number one. Surprise number one, Matthew. And so in my notes, I try to put an explanation point by these because I'm trying to do surprise, right? I'm trying to do this, uh, and maybe I won't get so animated, but maybe I will. But Matthew is the first one, and I know some of you are going, we didn't even read Matthew's name in the genealogy, right? You're right, we didn't, but Matthew's name showed up before the genealogy. And big bold letters if you got your own Bible, right? And most of us says, 
the gospel according to, say it out loud, Matthew. And that's a surprise. Why? Because Matthew was a tax collector. He's a wicked, greedy, selfish, self-centered traitor. That's who Matthew is, or was. He loved money more than he even loved his nationality. He sold himself out to Rome and got rich off the backs of his own people. What a scoundrel. What a low life. When you talk about being a piece of work, he's a piece of work. But something happened to Matthew to where he radically changed. And it tells us in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While everyone else would have dismissed Matthew as a traitor, a lost cause, a hopeless case, Jesus saw a disciple. Jesus saw a child of God. And so every time over these next two years, when we gather here, and when you gather in the homes and community groups all across the city, and we say this, open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, I want us to be reminded that no one is too far gone. That no one is too far away from this one-way love that God extends to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that when we hear Matthew, we think hope. That there's hope for me, that there's hope for my neighbor, that there's hope for my child, that there's hope for my dad, there's hope for my mom, there's hope for my, my whatever, fill in the blank. Whoever God is burdening you with, and in your mind you're thinking there's no way they are too far gone, there's no way they'll ever come to Christ, there's no way they'll ever come to their senses. When you hear Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew. You'll be reminded that no one's too far gone. Matthew is a surprise. He shouldn't be in here. He shouldn't be writing a biography of Jesus. But Jesus saw something else. He saw a disciple. He saw a follower of him. He saw a child of God. Surprise number one, Matthew. Surprise number two, Jesus. Exclamation point. And I know we're going like, Jesus? For real? That's a surprise? It is. Because no one expected him. Over and over, as we read through the book of Matthew, and we'll unpack this, you'll see his own followers that spent three and a half years with him. They'll continue to say, who is this man? Like they just did not get it. You can go home and read Luke 24. And I, I might enable this slide. Sorry, uh, Kevin, I didn't use it in a 9 here. I'm using 11. But in Luke chapter 24, he gives us this account where these two people are going uh, away from Jerusalem after all the events that took place, the death of Jesus Christ. And they're having this conversation and really confused. And Jesus pops up, right? This such a wonderful story. I love it. He pops up and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? Why are you so downcast? And they're going, have you not, like, what planet are you from, right? Have you been having your head in the sand? And then they go to explain to Jesus all that happened to Jesus, right? It's so funny. But here's verse 31. This is what they're saying. But we were hoping. This is what their expectation was. They were hoping that Jesus was the one that they've been longed for. They didn't know for sure, but it wasn't. They're, they're saying everything's gone. It's all dejected because Jesus was crucified. And so look, what Matthew is trying to do in writing this gospel is to show us and the Jewish people that Jesus is the one. 
That he's the one that, that all the Old Testament prophets are speaking of. That he's the one that all the Old Testament is pointing forward to. He's the one that, that they've been longing for and waiting for and praying for. And that's what we see here in verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I mean, most of us know this, but it's always good for us to be reminded. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. I mean, sometimes we treat it like that, but it's not. Christ is a title. And that title means the anointed one, the Messiah. This is the one that, Jesus, that God has promised. He's the anointed one that's sent out from God. He goes on and says, the son of David, the son of Abraham, which doesn't make much sense to us. But to a Jewish reader, when they hear the son of David and the son of Abraham, they're recalling a lot of promises that were made about the son of David. God said to the King David that from your line, is going to come someone whose kingdom will last forever and he will reign as king forever and ever. And what Matthew is doing here is saying, surprise, it's Jesus. That's what he's doing. The son of Abraham, there's a promise that God made to him in Genesis chapter 12 where he says, through your family line, the nations, not singular but plural, the nations will be blessed. And what Matthew is doing when he says the son of Abraham, he's saying, surprise, right? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. I know it's not what you expect. I know that if, if you would kind of um, had to build your characterization of who you think the Messiah would be, you would have never chosen Jesus. You would never, ever described him. But surprise, that's who he is. The son of David, the son of Abraham. One commentator says it like this. This is a promise meeting Israel's longing for an eternal David. And a promise meeting the Gentiles' yearning for a universal Savior. Son of David says, Israel, here is your Messiah, your anointed one. Son of Abraham says, nations, here is your hope. And so Matthew sets out to write this biography about Jesus so that we can see that he is the one that the nation of Israel was waiting for and longing for, and he's what we're waiting for and longing for. And my prayer as we work through this little gospel is that is that we will realize that there are expectations that we have of Jesus that are not rooted in revelation, but they're rooted in your own makings. That, that if we really read the Gospels here as we spend two years in, my prayer is that you'll be surprised. My prayer is that you will say, wow, this is not who I expected. And we will realize that all of us in this room, including me, have a tendency to construct God in our own image out of speculation, not revelation. And what I'm asking us to do as we work through these, these next two years together is that we will allow Matthew to present to us Jesus who then is presenting to us who God is. And so if I want to know who God is, how he lives, acts, his character, then I don't have to make it up. I don't have to speculate, but I can look to the person of Jesus Christ because Jesus is God in the flesh. And my prayer is that we'll deconstruct this God we've made in our own image and we'll reconstruct it through revelation that the gospel of Matthew's given to us because he's showing us who Jesus is. And I promise you, I promise you, he's not what we expect. And he will surprise us. My prayer is that we'll ask for that. 
that even as we work this, read our own little sections, that this would be our constant prayer. God surprised me. God surprised me here. Let me see something I've never seen before. Surprise number one is Matthew. Surprise number two is Jesus. Surprise number three is women are included in the genealogy. We did this whole series on this called The Mothers of Jesus a couple Christmases ago. If you've never listened to that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, it's very profoundly impacted me, and I know it ministered to a lot of people in our community. Uh, but it's, it's interesting that Matthew intentionally includes five women in Jesus' genealogy. And I say intentionally because he did it on purpose. And four of those five, I mean, their past is a little shady. It really is. So if you look in your bulletin or if you've got your own Bible, man, underline these names and go back and read their stories. But verse 3, we got Tamar. So her story is in Genesis chapter 38. The most scandalous story possibly in all of Scripture. It's one of the reasons why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. primary author is God himself because if you're making this stuff up, you don't keep Genesis 38 in there. Like, it, it doesn't make sense. But in that story, you'll, you'll find out that Tamar dresses up like a prostitute in order to seduce her father-in-law so that she, he would sleep with her and, and they can have a child because Judah wasn't doing his responsibility. It's a big, huge, dysfunctional mess, and you thought your family was bad. Read the Bible. Amen. Because <laughs> um, they're a messed up bunch, just like all of us are in our families. So that's Tamar. Doesn't stop there. Verse 5 is Rahab. And what was her occupation? She was a prostitute. She sold herself. She heard about God, hid the spies of Israel, and God saved her. Other one is Ruth in verse 5. Got a whole book of the Bible about her. And sometimes we have a tendency to kind of sanitize that whole relationship with Boaz. But there's some shady seducing going on there, man. Yeah, I, it's, some, it's some strange stuff. And then you got the wife of Uriah. Interesting, verse 6. He didn't say Bathsheba, does he? Why? He mentions Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then the wife of Uriah. What is he doing there? Why didn't he say Bathsheba? Well, because he's wanting you to remember the whole story. That's why. And the whole story is this. is King David, and yep, he's in the line of Jesus. King David sleeps with his best friend's wife. How wicked and evil is that? And on top of that, to cover up what he did, he has Uriah killed. So the reason why he doesn't say Bathsheba here is not to dishonor her, but he wants the people that are reading this to recall the entire story. Look, in this time, genealogies were like a, like a resume. You leave the bad stuff out, right? You ever written a resume and you put that one place where you got fired? Oh, let's put that on the top of my list. I want them to have a conversation with that employer. What, you know what I'm saying? No, you don't. You leave that off and pray that they don't ask any questions about it, right? Same way with a resume. 
I mean, a, a genealogy in this time, you, you omit what looks bad on you. You want to show the purity of your family line. You want to show your worth and your, your value to have this title or position or this place. Women were only added if they would ensure the purity of the line or enhance its dignity. But not so with Jesus. Matthew intentionally adds these women in this genealogy and there is a number of reasons why he does that. And I think one of the reasons that we got to see here is this, is that, is that Jesus came for those who are broken, who have a messy past, who have sin, who have struggles, who have difficulty. I mean, Jesus said it from his own mouth. I didn't come for the righteous. And he wasn't saying that as if there were people who are righteous. There are people who believe in the illusion that they are righteous, and so it's really hard for them to see their need for Jesus. But Jesus didn't come for them. He came for the sick. He came for those that are aware of their own brokenness, their own sinfulness. And that's what we see here, that no matter who we are, no matter where we came from, no matter what we have done, Jesus came to include you in his family. That Matthew crafted this genealogy and put this together in order to communicate to us that Jesus came from those he came for. You follow me? That Matthew crafted, I'm using that language on purpose and I'll explain that in just a few minutes. But he crafted this genealogy so that we would see that Jesus came from broken, dysfunctional mess of a family tree right those he came for Bruner in his Matthew commentary and you'll probably hear me say that over and over because his two volume set is just phenomenal he says this one gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable connections possible in order to insert them into his record and say finally to preach the gospel even in his genealogy. So how much does Jesus love those that are coming out of some broken, messed up situations who recognize their own sin and fallenness and brokenness? How much does he love them so much that he's not ashamed to put them in his family tree? He chose his family. You get that, right? We don't do that. But God has the power to choose what family he wants to be a part of. And he chose this family. Third surprise. There are women in the genealogy. The last one is this, and this is where we're landing the plane. Surprise number four is 14. 14. So I try to emphasize that in reading verse 17, and hopefully you saw that. And hopefully you're reading that going... What's going on? But look what he says here. So all the generations from Abraham to David were, say it out loud, 14. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14. And from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, why? What is Matthew trying to do here and repeating 14 three times in, in one verse? You see, if you really looked at the genealogy and you did the research and find, try to track all these names, you will notice that Matthew skipped a few kings. 
He omitted a few kings. And so you can think, oh, there's an error in the Bible. Oh, we can't believe the Bible. We can't trust it, blah, 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 go on and on and on. Well, okay, no, that's not an error. That's an intentional mistake, so to speak. Because Matthew is not just trying to give us the, the ancestry of Jesus. He's not just trying to accurately fill in the blanks on this family tree. He has another plan. And so, yes, in his time, you know, skipping some generations, omitting things in genealogy was, was, was common practice. But Matthew wanted to do something. He wanted to communicate something to us by putting his genealogy in three sets of 14. What's going on here? Well, Jesus is not just one member in an ongoing family, but actually the goal of the whole list. That's what Matthew's trying to communicate to us. You see, Matthew arranged the genealogy into three groups of 14 names, or another way of saying this, six groups of seven names. So he arranges the genealogy in three groups of 14 names, or you can also say six groups of seven names. And listen to this. The number seven is one of the most powerful symbolic numbers in the Bible. And to be born at the beginning of the seventh, seventh, which is Jesus, in the sequence here is clearly to be the climax of the entire list. Matthew is saying this and how he crafted his genealogy. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the goal of history. And this is a... Um, a profound thing for Matthew to say, especially in the time that he was writing. Because who was the dominant power in the world at this time? Who? Rome. And they looked like they were in charge. They were a powerful empire in this time. And by Matthew writing his genealogy in such the way that he wrote it and sexing it off in the way that he wrote it, he's trying to say, nope. They are not in power. They are not this great empire. In fact, it's an illusion. You know who's in control? Not Rome, but God. You know who's orchestrating all these things appointed to his end? Not Rome, but God. Everything Rome does is feeding back into this massive history that God is writing. So Matthew, in his creative way, is, is crafting this genealogy to help you and me understand that God is the author of history. And I know this sounds so cliche and blah, 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 but it's true. It is his capital H story. Not mine. Not any world leader. It is his story. And even though there are times we can't see it, it doesn't make sense, we can't recognize it, God is in complete control and he is orchestrating and moving all the events of the world to his appointed end. And for us in this room, I pray it gives us great security and confidence that even when we look out in this world and it seems so chaotic and crazy, that we know we have a God who's orchestrating all of it to his appointed end. So, if that's what that means on kind of a macro level, like a large-scale level, Lyle, then what does that mean on a micro level in my own life? And I think this is what, um, what Matthew wants us to do in part. There are times when he doesn't give much commentary or narration. 
And so you'll find these little gems here. And he doesn't say, hey, this is what you're supposed to do with this. This is what it sort of means. He wants us, as the readers of this word in 2019, to sit back and reflect and think and say, okay, Holy Spirit, what do, what do I do with this? What does this mean in my own life? It's similar to what Paul's advice to Timothy was. Hey, I've given you these words. I've given you these instructions. Look, think on them. Reflect upon them. And God will give you understanding. And that's what Matthew is wanting to do here. So what does that mean on a micro level? Well, some of it I'll... I want to push back in your lap. You need to go home and think on it. You need to reflect on this. How does this work out in my own personal life? If this is what God's doing on this massive macro level, M-A-C-R-O, right? I'll give you a couple of mine, okay? And you can, you can steal mine and think on them, but I'll give you a couple of mine. One is this. Maybe you're here this morning and you're absolutely confused about life. And if there's one way that you would just kind of describe your own life, it's, it's just confusion. You don't know why things are happening. Things that are happening in your life don't make sense right now. You don't feel like there's any kind of connection. And in fact, you feel like the psalmist in Psalm 10. You're crying out to the Lord. You're crying out to the Lord. And it seems like the darkest, difficult times, God is absent. It almost feels like he's not even hearing you. Sometimes life can be um, uh, compared to a tapestry, Right? We had lunch with uh, Marvin and Debbie Miller a couple weeks ago, and she was talking about this, this idea of a tapestry. And if you don't know what a tapestry is, it's just like a, I don't know, a blanket quilt, right? So, you know, we're, um, and I may be even representing it really well there. So if you're a tapestry guru, just give me some grace here. But basically, you, uh, on one side of this big, massive quilt, you've just got this chaos of yarn, right, and thread. Doesn't make sense. You can't tell where connections are happening, that kind of stuff. But then you turn it over on the other side, it's a beautiful display of something. And it just, like all the colors come together and it makes sense. You say, oh yeah, see how that connects. Well, sometimes life, and maybe you're feeling this today, can feel a lot more like the backside of a tapestry. Where you just don't see any connections. You don't understand why this is happening and what this means here and why God did this and it just seems like a big old plate full of spaghetti, a lot of loose ends. One writer compared that to kind of like if we would walk into a movie, like in the middle of the movie, it's a two-hour movie, maybe walk in an hour in, and we sit there for five minutes, and then we get up and go, this is stupid. I can't make any connections. The character development's horrible. This doesn't make any sense. I'm out of here. Now, if that was you, or if you heard somebody say that, I mean, someone with a healthy mind would say, yeah, duh, of course it doesn't make sense, moron. You've been in the movie for five minutes. You came in the middle of the movie. Duh. You weren't for the whole picture. Then you kind of see all the connections there. Of course you're not going to understand it. Well, the same with life, isn't it? Sometimes we get angry. I don't, I don't see where all this connects. You're 30. You're 40 years old. You're 60. It's a millisecond of a five-hour movie. And we got to throw our hands up. I don't know what's going on. As crazy as this may sound, I need genealogies like this. 
to see that even though in my own experience it seems really confusing and I don't see where the connections are, God's at work. God's at work. He's doing something that we can't imagine or understand. And someday, and it probably won't be in this life, someday you're going to see the flip side of that tapestry, and it will make sense. You'll see, ah, there's the connection. I need a genealogy to be reminded that God is weaving a story. And there are moments when I don't see how that story is being woven and all the connections that he's making. And if there's one thing that this genealogy can teach us or invite us into, and that is trusting. And I don't say that flippantly. And I don't say that as it's real easy, because it's not. The more mileage you have on your life, and the more suffering and difficulty and pain you deal with, and the more confusion and loose ends you experience, trusting God is not easy. It's really hard. And I need something outside of myself. A genealogy. To help firm up my trust in him. That he's doing something that I can't fully see. So that's one, all right? The second one is this. We have no idea what 2019 holds for us. You have no idea what 2019 holds for you. I don't have a clue what, what it holds for me also. But here's what we do know. Bank on this. There will be surprises. Some of those surprises will be good, right? Some of you are going to get pregnant. Maybe you weren't planning on it. Surprise, right? Those are wonderful surprises, but they create a lot of stress in your life a little bit too, right? Some of you might meet the one. Some of you may land the scholarship, the promotion, the new job. Some of you might find out you're kin to Abraham Lincoln, right? <laughs> or maybe Adolf Hitler. I don't know. That's not, a, that's not a good surprise. It's like, oh, man, I knew something was wrong with me. Um, yeah, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> Some of you here might meet Jesus for the first time. Some of you might find your love for Jesus to deepen and grow this year in a surprising way. Some of those surprises will be difficult, tragic, hard. Jesus said it, it rains on the, the righteous and the unrighteous. All he's saying there is just because you're a follower of Christ does not mean you're immune to hardship, suffering, and difficulty. You may find out you have cancer. Death of someone close to you. A miscarriage. A friendship torn in two. You may lose your job. 
marriage may hit a a really weird barrier and difficulty that you just didn't expect or anticipate kind of took you off guard. Your finances can go into a really terrible downward spiral that you couldn't anticipate or expect. It was an absolute surprise. And so here's my question then. What anchors you? You don't know what's going to happen. What anchors you? What brings a settleness to you? I mean, I think, I think we medicate ourselves in ways that keep us from avoiding that reality. And I'm not saying these are wrong or sinful in and of themselves, but our culture is just um, saturated with distractions to where we don't even think about the lack of control that we have. And if we really thought about that, we would all probably be in counseling, <laughs> right? And I'm not saying we all need to go to counseling. I'm just saying we've got to find a, an anchor. We've got to find a place that settles us. We've got to find a place that brings, look, look, rest. That even in the midst of some of the darkest seasons, my soul and find rest. I mean, if you look at that genealogy, you know, from, you know, Abraham to, to David, it's kind of an upward trajectory a little bit, a, just a little bit. And when King David takes over, I mean, things are going great. I mean, it, they thought, he's the Messiah. He's everything God promised, man. This, this is awesome. It'd been great to live in King David's day. I mean, nation of Israel prospering, all kinds of wonderful stuff. Then sin and unfaithfulness starts, and man, bottom drops out. They're scattered all throughout the nations. They're not even in their homeland anymore. And then there comes a period of time where the prophets shut up, and for 400 years, there's nothing. Can you imagine that? For four generations, 400 years, not one word from God. But Matthew shows us that even in the midst of all that, who's the one that's constant? Who's the one that remains? Who's the one that's at work? Who's the one that is there? It is God. And who is God? Our God has a name, and his name is Jesus. So there's going to be a ton of surprises for you, and I am encouraging you inviting you to have Jesus as the anchor of your soul because he's the only one that can give you rest. I'll end with this verse, and I think if there's a verse that kind of sums up the theme, or even better yet, what Matthew is after in writing the gospel of Matthew, this is what he wants. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. This is Jesus speaking. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, heavy laden. This is what Matthew wants you to do. He wants you to come to Jesus. And when we come to Jesus, it doesn't say I'll give you answers. It doesn't say I'll give you a life without pain and difficulty. I'll give you all the reasons why this is happening to you, make all the connections for you. I'll help everything make sense to you. He says I'll give you rest. 
I'll give you rest. Who's your anchor? Matthew's saying, Jesus is the only anchor that you can have that'll give you rest in some of the darkest, hardest seasons in your life. Let's pray together. So God, in the quietness of this room, we just want to be still for just a moment and listen to you. God, help us to trust you. And God, help us to rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.